to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N, Tulsa.org. So yeah, that's a uh, kind of a shocking ending. Um, you got to think through Peter's perspective. Uh, Peter probably did not know that they were going to drop dead there. So that's kind of going to the end, right? Um, the end of the story, but, but just think of his perspective. <laughs> You've seen some really powerful things happen, and then all of a sudden, you're talking to these people. I know if I'm a bystander at that point, like I'm being really careful probably for the next few days. I'm number one, not talking to Peter or, or, or John, you know, like definitely not going to be lying to those guys. Uh, and so uh, some really striking things. So we'll go into that in a little bit. Um, and now remember, Luke is giving some summary statements here. Um, he's some beautiful summary statements that we've said. Um, the whole theme, the theme of the book, is flows out of Acts one eight. That one verse, um, the, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you in power, and you're going to be my witnesses. And so we learned that the word power there was this boldness for proclamation of the word, not necessarily just supernatural gifts and signs and wonders. Because in our day, that seems that that's kind of waned off after the apostles passed away and those original apostles. That that was still happening some, but um, and through church history, you can see that. But um, it's not happening to the extent that, that a lot of people would desire or some people would even try to manufacture. Um, people would try to make it to every service. There, there must be miracles. There must be signs. There must be things going on when actually sometimes God is doing the miraculous. He's dealing with our hearts that are in love with um, many, many idols, and he's dealing with our hearts, and that's a supernatural, powerful, God-glorifying thing. And uh, we, we kind of look over that some. And so Luke does a great job of tying in um, some, some really clear themes here as, as we go into this. Um, and, and remember, this is flowing right after the arrest of Peter and John. So remember, in cha- going back to chapter 3, we're at the end of chapter 4, going into chapter 5. Chapter 4 and 5, they, they probably could have put, like I said, uh, we're going through 432 through 511. They could have put the end of the chapter at 511 there because these stories, kind of chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, kind of run together in this theme of what happens. But remember, Peter and John going to the temple, time of prayer, 3 in the afternoon. They heal a guy. The Sanhedrin uh, hears about it. The, the, the crowd is kind of really excited. The guy's showing that he's healed. It, it, he had been one of those guys that had been around for so many years, for f- over 40 years. Um, people knew him as this guy that was just an invalid, that was, was not able to um, uh, do very much. And so he had, um, he had lots of things going on that, that people clearly saw. He's been changed. He's been transformed. He's been... Um, completely um, changed. And so as he did that, um, the, the, the crowd heard, the crowd grew, and then the religious leaders come and they arrested Peter and John. And then remember, um, what they told them was, you must not go on preaching anymore about this Jesus and what he was teaching and also the resurrection of the dead. You're stirring things up. And remember, Peter and John's answer to that was, if we have to choose between obeying man or obeying God, we have to keep preaching about this Jesus. And so then they were released. And remember last week we looked at the celebration as Peter and John come 
hopping down the path and get back to the group of disciples. And they're like, we can't believe this happened. And it turns into spontaneous praise to where then they even say, Lord, uh, look what you've done. We're amazed at this. We praise you for this. Would you now give us more of that boldness that you promised in Acts 1.8? What Jesus told us before he ascended, we got a little bitty taste of that. We want more boldness. The scariest thing that could possibly happen, the guys who killed Jesus just had us on trial, and, and we want more of that. Let us go before them, whatever would happen. And so they, they, they even desire, and there's this change that happens from Acts 1.8 being kind of a rule on the side of the building Hey, go and be my witnesses, right? Now, I want to, I desire, I love, I'm finding my true identity and having this boldness. And it doesn't have to be a rude boldness. It doesn't have to be a rude in your face, slap slap everyone with it, but just the way that that goes with different people. And so they prayed for that. And so now, here we go into this kind of summary. Now, think through this. Let, let's take a side note. That's all happened. What's the darker forces doing? What's Satan and his minions? Because we, we read this, and we're, we're Christians. This is our team. Win, 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 right? This is going good. Um, there's celebration. There's rejoicing. God's changing their hearts to where it's not now something, a list to do, but now it's, I enjoy doing this. We kind of have probably turned our head and forgot about Satan and, and the, the, the satanic forces. This is new to them. They did not understand Jesus was going to raise from the dead. That, that's a, that's a, you know, a, a roadkill for them. Like, oh, goodness, that, that didn't work out real good. And so actually that fulfilled God's plan. And that's what Peter and John told them is like, actually all of this worked out in your sovereign plan. And killing Jesus is actually what provided salvation. And surprise, he rises from the grave. So what's Satan and his minions doing? Think through this. Um, where God is working, there will be very active spiritual warfare. We, all of us, we know and we say spiritual warfare is real, but we very easily remove it from our minds. Um, we just think, oh, life's just happening. And sometimes it is. You stump your toe. It wasn't Satan showing up going, I can't wait to hurt this pinky toe, right? So that's not his, his goal. And you, you just stumped your toe in the middle of the night. And so, but sometimes there's things that happen that, that, that are more of the spiritual nature. And so we're going to see this in this story. Where God is working, there will be active warfare. Satan will always work to bring sin and rebellion to destroy when a work of God is going on. So they see this unity, this fellowship, um, this sharing, this generosity. Uh, when it says they're all in unity and have one, one mind together, they're sharing, they're selling some of their property to give to those that are in need. They didn't have to. They didn't have to go. Hey, we, we see ten people over here who don't have food. We've got food for three years stocked up. Let's pray about what we should do. They're just going. They have a need. I have plenty. I'm going to give out of my plenty to the people that have need. That's what Jesus would do. I don't have to take a long time and have a strategic meeting and and, and form a committee. No, that, that's just what you do because that's what Jesus did. And now out of my overflow of generosity from him, I see that's his heart, and now my love for people, I'm wanting to give. Satan hates that. Satan hates people being conformed in the image of Christ. So he first schemed to bring persecution, right, from the outside. So outsiders of the church come and attack. 
Satan used that. You look at church history from the, these days, these, these first days here, this is exactly what happens. You see church history, you go through. From outside, there's attack. What happens when that doesn't work? He comes in and he attacks, and what happens? They're bolder. They're praying more, and what does it say? And great grace was on them all. Now they love sharing the gospel. Oh, we thought when, if we persecuted them and caused fear and threatened them, it would shut this down. It wasn't just the chief priests and the Sadducees. They were being used by Satan. It was satanic thoughts that they were having. Now, that was from the outside. Now, from the inside, if Satan's plan doesn't work, attack and threats from the outside, he goes to work inside. So um, he first schemed persecution from the outside. And their answer was, God, consider their threats, but grant us even more boldness to witness about Christ. Satan now moves to destroy this unity and love and beautiful radical generosity um, that, that glorifies God and it's spreading and more and more people are coming to know Christ. He moves to work from the inside. Satan uses people and our hearts. And it doesn't take much. I'm in small group. And something ticked me off a couple times earlier on Monday and Tuesday, and it's Wednesday night. In small group now, someone says something, and I just have, my heart's kind of frustrated and angry, and I just, I'm, I'm kind of ticked at them now. And he says something, and then I pull a couple people aside, like, did you hear what Jared said? Man, he's just always, he's just always, do you see what happens? Little bitty things. And now we've got this, this, this other pathway Instead of unity and love and oneness, now we've got this pathway. And he does it with all kinds of things. It could be someone saying, like, hey, did you see the new truck? I promise you, if someone pulls up in a new truck, I'm probably going to sneak out and say I'm going to the bathroom. And I'm going to take nails, and I'm, I'm carrying nails and a hammer just to go and pop people's four tires. And we're going to walk out of a small group, um, and, and they're going to like, what happened? There's nails, and I'm going to smile driving away. And God may do whatever, and that's, that's how difficult the place we're at with vehicles right now. And so don't, don't bring your new vehicle to small group. I'm joking, sir. Probably we'll have a small group, and somebody will walk out, and there's a flat, and everybody's going to be like, Sankey said this out loud. We've got it recorded. Uh, Ross is giving me really weird looks, like you're a weirdo, definitely. And so um, we, when, we, when we're thinking through that, that's how Satan works. Our hearts can take one little thing, little things that we're reading. This is the, the, the beauty of online stuff, but also the huge gamut of bad information and people's views on here's an interpretation, here's what's truth, and we're not sometimes really discerning. We're not really um, discerning on these things. And now the next thing you know, something I thought was kind of off, now I've, I've kind of studied and, and now I'm over here and I'm into it. And that happens all the time. And so doctrinally, um, it, relationally, all these things, Satan moves to destroy inside the church. It's not lightning that he uses to destroy, is it? It's not usually a natural disaster because what happens? People still gather together. Pandemic, people still want to gather together. It's things that happen all over the world, we want to gather together. When there's focused, committed teaching to truth, and people are learning biblical truth, and growing in discipleship, and community, fellowship, serving one another, a loving environment, Satan would obviously want to attack that. Attack that area that, that's moving forward with the gospel and kingdom. Um, I had two guys in the last two weeks, so we're, I'm talking about you know like, uh, church planting, just the difficulty. Look at our small church that's here, and people that's listening online, they don't know how small this is, but, but they were saying, Sankey, 
if you guys are doing these things, it may not look like a lot compared to a church that has 5,000. He goes, but you're focused, you're focused on the, the main things and people's lives are being transformed. It just, it's, it's not uh, Facebook worthy. It's not Instagram worthy. It, it's not attractional. But these are the foundational things. It, it, you don't get to decide when that starts multiplying a whole lot. And so that was real encouraging, but you're still going, man, I just want to see more lives. I want people, I want to see more lives impacted. I want to see souls saved. We want to see that, right? We want to see people growing in the faith and those things. And so um, it's not those outside crazy things. It's not the outside liberals that, that are causing problems. Sometimes it's inside the church, um, it's not all the bad out there. So I'll tell you, my life, probably 99.9. I'm almost sure it's 110%. 99.9, the last 23 years, it's been people inside the church. Some, some punches to the face. Some, some, some punches to the gut. Ten punches, you fall down, they step on you. Some, some daggers in the back. 99.9, inside the church. And that's sad. That that's what happens. That's why. Uh, that's one of the biggest reasons why the, the big percentage of people that are de-churched, some of the abuses and things that happened inside churches. And so that's what happened. So um, when those things are going on, you know Satan wants to attack. Um, we were part of a, a church one time, and man, we had a lot of young college students, and then also a lot of young couples. And, and people they would they would come after after being there for two. If they come for three weeks, they would go. This is just different, like from the church I went to back home. This is just different. It's kind of weird. You guys really like put a lot of emphasis on God's word, or it's really like long teaching and it's heavy teaching. Um, but then after, if they come for three months, if they, if they made it past the three, we they usually say, "Man, this is really doing something inside my soul." But then, if, if they were, and then if they come for like a year, we probably had to start like pumping the brakes because now they're real prideful. Like, man, we are such a good church. Man, I didn't know that the sovereignty of God was so important. I didn't know expositional preaching. I didn't know that a plurality of elders and having solid deacons. I didn't know that uh, you know discipleship and life on life stuff. I didn't know that living together and, and doing these things in community and serving. I didn't know all those things mattered. These these doctrines of grace, all these things. Um, now we've got it all right. And then when the church had an implosion because of a pastor who just got off on some things. Um, then, they, then I had two or three couples say, man, I thought we had found the perfect church. I thought we had it all right. And many of you have been a part of those type places, and people go, how does that happen when you're doing everything right? What, what, what happens? Satan is using little bitty things that we get off on, just a tiny degree at the first. Um, we never thought that that would happen to such a biblical and godly place. If you find out that your stances and your views are correct, it should only lead us to more humility, not more pride to where we're so proud now of these things instead of being in awe and broken by those things and just in complete humility. And then if you treat people out of humility and slowly share some of those things that have become important to you, then there, there's growth. If it leads to pride and like, oh God, how stupid and foolish that those other places do this. How stupid and foolish. How stupid and foolish to where we hate them and we hate the, the lost crowd around us, we, we've missed it. So they're experiencing beautiful grace and unity here. Um, if you were an enemy and saw great unity of heart and soul and radical generosity, 
and then Christ-like, sacrificial, pouring ourselves out for others, lovingly telling others what Christ has accomplished, um, great grace and, 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 and powers flowing from the Spirit in community. If you were an enemy watching all that, what would you do? That's where you'd want to attack, right? So um, Satan and his forces, they know how to strategically attack the weakest points. Um, you guys know this last uh, football season, it was our third year with my youngest son. And so we, we fourth grade year, pretty tough, a lot of good teams. They've been playing kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth. They were already stacked. Fifth grade year, we're a little bit better. By the sixth grade, uh, because of, we had some pretty good athletes and a couple of other teams had moved on, everyone that fifth grade year at the end said, hey, man, this sixth grade Metro, better watch out. We knew we had some good players, had some good athletes. We had, some, uh, we had a lot of speed. Speed makes up for a lot. Speed can make up for a lot of mistakes. And so we had a really uh, four or five guys who could catch the ball and had speed. And we had a pretty uh, unique quarterback, left-handed quarterback, really good. But we knew we had weaknesses. And oh, do we have weaknesses. And we, um, you have to learn to accentuate your strengths and hopefully hide your weaknesses. And we go all the way and we get to that, you guys know, some of you, that we got to the championship game and we get just trumped. We just get beat down. And so uh, at the end of the game, one of, the, one of our offensive guys, uh, coaches, just asked the other coach and said, hey, we thought, you know, you know the team that, that you guys beat to get here, we beat 42 to 6. And so we thought we were going to destroy you guys. He said, what, what happened? And that guy said, I watched one minute of video and saw your weakness and saw that clearly. I knew we were going to destroy you guys. One minute of video. Oh, if you've got a clear, obvious weakness, and I know how to completely blow that up, and that's what happens. What does Satan do in missions families? He goes for the weakest link. Two years selling all your possessions off, leaving your good paying job and insurance and health and safety and no mosquitoes and no malaria and all that. And you do the difficult thing of saying goodbye to family and grandparents and you do all this stuff. How many missionary stories do you hear about them getting there and God uses a little bitty thing of a weakness and he can bring people back? It can be kids, it can be health, it can be a marriage, it can be insecurities, it can be all kinds of things that could be hidden for a long time. Church planting and missions, it's one area that Satan wants to destroy. And so just I think that we forget um, we're in a church plant because it doesn't look good. It doesn't look fancy. It doesn't look like it's got all these functioning wheels going on. And we forget that, man, Satan wants to kill church plants, right? Um, he wants to kill missions. Two of the most pointed areas of attack, if you look at church history. Um, so that may be going on in your family. Know how to um, to pray and defend against that. So, so let's see the spirit-empowered environment of unity and grace that they're dealing with here. And then let's see what's going on. So for, the first thing that we see here is in verse 32, um, they say that they were of one heart and soul and that people had belongings and they sold them off and everything that, was, that they had sold off, they would bring and they would just lay out for the elders and say, hey, here, you, you take the apostles, you take this and you use it for the needs of the church. Um, it sounds like Acts chapter 1-8. It says that um, they were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Um, and Luke remembers, he's writing this, he's looking back, writing this, going, man, that's what was happening. They were seeing needs, just meeting those needs. Um, they were 
in unity and oneness, some of the richer people and the poor people coming together in the same house, worshiping together, and, and they shared things. There, there, there's some things that, that poor people have uh, financial or physical needs to be taken care of by a rich person. There's needs that the rich person may be relational, maybe um, things about just caring for people that they need how to learn how to grow. And so we all have needs. Just because well, this person has uh, more finances doesn't mean they've got everything figured out. And we tend in America to think that. And people with a lot of wealth tend to think that. Well, obviously, I've got it all figured out because look, look at all I've got. And you can meet some of those people who are some of the biggest jerks. At the same time, people with less means sometimes, they hate anyone with um, any kind of wealth. They despise them. Um, they don't see how much hard work went into that. And so... Um, in this, a beautiful picture of love and grace. And so this, this love and generosity that's going on is just powerful. Um, and of course, Satan wants to destroy this. Um, this passage right here has been used um, by some subcultures in the past um, in Christianity. So subcultures in Christianity to make a stance for communism or socialism. So just so you'll know, this is a part that they have used. And that's wrong. That's not what this is saying. This is not teaching this. So um, it's not a biblical passage calling for socialism or communism. They're similar. There's some differences. It's not a command that all needs must be met to where it, this is not a command that the early church or Jesus was saying, I command you to completely destroy statuses. I command you to completely um, do away with um, some having a lot and some having little. That's not, that was not Jesus' point. What was Jesus' whole picture? The amazing thing about the gospel and Jesus' death was that no matter where you're at, all are equal at the foot of the cross. All are equal at the foot of the cross. There are going to be differences in status, socioeconomic. There's going to be people looked at differently racially, ethnically, um, as I don't like them, I despise them. The power of the gospel is that we all come together and we live as if those barriers aren't there. I, I, you're ethnically different. You're, you're um, racially different. You're um, socioeconomically different. But the gospel says, you're my brother, you're my sister. That's the power of the cross. So some people have taken this to say this was um, calling for everyone um, who has a lot, you have to um, diminish and, and you have to distribute equally. So you remember Marxism and some of those things. Sell all your possessions. There's no division of classes, and that, that was not Jesus' point. Um, so you're going to see that. There, this tends to be, sometimes right now there's in Tulsa this is going on, this, this, these house church movements sometimes, sometimes that turns. Because here's what they do. They go, ooh, we're actually living out Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4. They go, we're actually doing this fellowship and unity, and we're sharing, we're doing these things. And they believe, and then they, and here, here's what happens. And so like, oh, in humility, this is beautiful. Um, now they, someone goes, hey, you know what? Um, there wasn't even different levels. We need communal living. Um, you need to, you got nicer stuff. You need to sell your stuff and drive a you know, 2003 whatever uh, instead of having that because this person over here doesn't have a job. and doesn't have, It's not saying that. It's not saying you have to sell everything. It's not saying that anyone that has anything is, is worldly. Um, it's not trying to make those points. Um, so concerning socialism, um, Jesus was not trying to lead to socialism. Just so you know that, I don't think that anyone here is going for that, but just know that that's going to be hitting uh, depending on the little subcultures that you read about. Uh, again, it tends to be sometimes, not all of these house church movements, because some, like in, in, in China, the house church movement, it's all they've got, right? That's not becoming the deal there. 
they probably are living out Acts 2, 3, and 4 to a greater degree than us, and that's a blessing on them. Remember last week we talked about we have a spiritual um, depression compared to some of the thriving that's going on there. It is easier where we're at. It is more comfortable. So that they've got a little flourishing going on there because it's illegal, but they're not trying to make it a thing like a, a new rule or a new command. So it's not a biblical command prescribing everyone to sell possessions. And we're going to see this with Ananias and Sapphira. Um, but they were acting in great grace. Um, beautiful picture there. And so then he goes into talking about Barnabas. He, Joseph is the Barnabas that we, we know about Barnabas from the New Testament. So um, he says, um, Joseph, who is also called Barnabas, as he goes into this, he says, so there's this great grace and people were selling possessions and, and distributing and giving money to the poor. It was not a command. It wasn't like you had to, or Jesus was saying, you, this is your only choice. Let me give you an example. This one guy, Barnabas, he, he does that. So he just goes into this story about Barnabas. And we know some things about Barnabas beyond this. This is our first introduction to Barnabas, but I, I'm going to put some things up there so you'll know about him. Um, now, um, just Luke just told us that, that many were, were selling things. It was not only Barnabas, um, not every single person. Um, but I want you to think through what it would look like in the church if this become the norm. And that's what Luke's trying to hint towards. What if this was the norm where our compassion for others just led us to, to see a need and we just kind of met that need? Um, you can't do it on every single situation and you can't do it to an extravagant uh, amount, but, but giving sometimes out of your assets and not just your income. And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but I want you to, let, let's take a side note on Barn, Barnabas real quick. I want you to consider this for your own life. Um, it may not be you, hey, you need to sell your car or sell your land, but it may be something else that the Lord in the prompting of the Holy Spirit calls you to. And I want you to think through Barnabas's view, and I want you to think through God's view. Here's Barnabas's view. He seemed to be prompted. No one told him he had to. He just saw needs. I'm about the kingdom, about the gospel going forward. I understand the generosity of God in Jesus. Man, I feel prompted to sell this land that I've got over here. If I keep this land, it's probably going to bring security to my retirement. If I keep this, it's gonna, it, it, I've got a, a nest egg, right? But with this land, it's going to require maintenance. It's going to require time. It's going to require me working the land. It may require lots of dealings with other people who are going to manage the land for me. Lots of time maintaining it. But... It's going to provide a nest egg later on. God's view. I gave this to Barnabas. Let's see if he understands what's been poured out on him. If you sell this land, you're free. I'm going to make your life about me. This thing's removed. You're free from it. No time maintaining it. No time where you're free. I've told you I want to make your life about me. Be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Hey, Barnabas, you have no idea. You're standing as one of the back row guys, and you're, you aren't one of the first 11 there, and your life is going to be defined by Acts 1-8. Barnabas was the guy going with Paul. Ju Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and at their time, to the ends of the earth. That was Barnabas and Paul. Hey, I'm going to make your life about me. It's not going to be easy. 
So I'll be comfortable. So when Paul tells those stories about all the trauma they went through and the shipwrecks and the barely survived, Barnabas is right there floating on logs with him in the ocean for a day and a night. All the, the beatings, all those things, Barnabas is right there. Not going to be easy, but I'm your inheritance. Piece of land. You want to hold on to that land? And here, here's us in America. You want to hold on to this nest egg? I've told you about the kingdom. I've told you about uh, sacrificing things here to where you're living for eternal things. Your time is getting so much into these other worldly things that, that here's, you're missing out on this kingdom stuff. So God gives us something as a steward. And we all say, yeah, we know that it all belongs to God. But then if we're not careful, we don't live that out practically. Um, so, so Luke gives this example of Barnabas. Barnabas didn't know what the next step was going to be. But for whatever reason, God had led him to a crossroad. And the cross, crossroad was consider selling your land because you see needs. Or keep your land. I'm not forcing you. And that's what he does with us. This is why I said I want you to think through from God's perspective on our lives. Are there things that he brings to your life? I've, I've dealt with many, many people. I was, I've been shocked before. I've met with small group leaders. Had no idea. Killing it. He's an accountant. He's a CEO. He's doing stuff. You get lunch with them. They go, you know, 14 years ago, our kids were little. We've been helping out in the youth. We took a mission trip to, you know, wherever. And God really laid it on my wife and my heart about um, going overseas. But man, I was starting out, and it was the first time we really started making some good money. And I, we really felt led to do that and everything, but then we had to really think through, you know, what about the kids? What about, what about man, I'm starting to make some grounds in my job. I just wonder what would have happened. Is God cursing his life because he stayed with the accountant? Sometimes God said, you know what, I, I pulled my yes off the table, and I just had to kind of control that and go, you know, just this would probably be safer. This would be better. Um, lots of people that you run into, you don't know their story. And, and, and that's what they'll say. So um, the crossroads. Some of you younger people, youth, um, you never know when God's going to do that to where he calls you to something. Um, and it can be scary. He doesn't promise you what he's going to make that um, look a certain way. Um, so that's what he's doing with him. So now here's what we know about Barnabas. He was a Levite from Cyprus. He tells them the story. He's a Levite. So what do we know about the Levites? This doesn't make sense. You could say it must be errors in the Bible because if we know earlier, Levites were not allowed to own land. Remember when God dispersed um, the different lands to the 12 different tribes? Remember what the Levites get? You get me. They didn't get a piece of land. So all the others got nice land, some of them really, really nice land. You know, like, and then, then the Levites, you don't get land as inheritance. I am your inheritance. The other 11 tribes, you get a percentage of their food. You get a percentage of the things that they're living off. So kind of like a tithe, you're getting a percentage from those different ones. So your food and your resources and your provision will be from them, but you get me. You're going to handle the temple courts and the, the, the priestly stuff. And so all priests were Levites, but all Levites did not have to be priests. Does that make sense? All priests had to be from the Levites, but not all, all Levites were priests. So they handled those important things inside the temple, the temple duties. Uh, Deuteronomy 18 says this, the Levitical priests, indeed, the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no allotment or inheritance with Israel. They shall live on the food offerings presented to the Lord 
for that is their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among the fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. So all of those other tribes. And so now here we get a picture of Barnabas, except he's from Cyprus, the little island there in the Mediterranean Sea, right to the um, west of Jerusalem. Um, And he's from Cyprus. So some people believe that he was a Levite. His parents, maybe his father was a priest, and he had been a priest. Remember, priests would serve for two or three weeks of their whole life sometimes, if you were an outskirts guy. If you were not in the main city of Jerusalem, you might have a daily, you know, uh, weekly thing that your whole life you served there. If you're an outskirts, you would be brought in three weeks of your whole life. And then you'd go back to your area and you would be one of the priests in the smaller kind of rural temple thing, but you weren't doing the full-time job. You probably had an agricultural job, so it made sense for his family to probably own land. He inherited land, had land, and so he's still a Levite. But the beautiful picture here is... He is this guy who the Lord was his inheritance. And he goes, you know what? The Lord is my inheritance. These other things are just distracting right now. I want this to be what my life's about. What if he would have never given this? God didn't say, hey, I'm going to use you and Paul to be the ones who take the gospel to all these places. I'm showing you steps 2 and 5 and 10 and 15. I'm showing you all those huge steps out there. Usually it's just the first thing of obedience. One step of obedience. And usually we don't, we don't do real good with that sometimes. So some people would say this kind of seems dangerous or something. Um, why would he do this? Why would he sell this land? It's security. Um, but think through what Barnabas would have missed out on if, if he just hardens his heart, calluses his heart, and, and, and says no on this little bitty aspect. Um, Here's some things about just quickly skimming. Here's what Barnabas could have missed out on. All the unknowns. Acts chapter 7, stoning of Stephen. We're about to get there. Remember they pick up and they stone Stephen? Guess who's there? Barnabas. Watching that. Who's the guy charging them to stone Stephen? Saul, who changes his name to Paul, right? Saul is unconverted at that time. He thinks he's defending God. Uh, Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul. Remember, he's riding on the horse, the big light. All the guys fall down. He's blinded, goes into the city. The guy says, hey, I'm going to remove these blinders from you. And now, and Jesus spoke to him clearly. And so Jesus had a very uh, self-revelatory time with Paul repeatedly. Um, Paul, uh, Barnabas is right in the city as those things are going on. Christians throughout the area, they knew Saul as being the one who was killing people. Acts 9 says this. I think I have a slide. It says uh, Barnabas um, is the one who actually brings Paul, who's now converted after Acts chapter 9. He's the one, as, as Paul has went into the city and is proclaiming the gospel, and people are getting saved, Barnabas is present, sees it all, and then brings Paul to the, to the disciples. And they're like, uh-uh, he's the one who killed Stephen. And Barnabas is the one who brings in Paul. So it says, um, when he had come to Jerusalem, talking about Paul, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not know that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, his conversion experience, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. It must be conversion. Sounds like Acts chapter 1-8. He's preaching boldly. See what Luke's doing here, throwing in here? Um, so he, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas is the one who brings him into the fold of the disciples. Um, Acts 11, he and uh, Paul are the ones who undertake a mission to minister to the Greeks at Antioch. Jerusalem churches, the big piece, uh, up to about Acts chapter 9 or 10 or 11 or 12. 
Antioch becomes the, the focal point of churches and becomes the powerhouse. They became the sending place. Jerusalem is kind of a poor church. Antioch is like, you know, like, I don't know, Life Church or Battle Creek. They're, they're the big, they're, uh, what's the one, Prestonwood or something. They've got a lot of resources. And then they become a sending church. So they're like, Antioch is the powerhouse. And then um, and Paul and Barnabas are two of the leaders in Antioch now. And then Acts 13, um, he accompanied Paul on the first missionary journey. And so you remember that? The, the elders sent Paul and Barnabas out. They set them aside, prayed for them. Big deal. Now Paul and Barnabas go out, and guess what happens? We hate this, but these non-Jews are getting saved. We, we can't shut it off. Like the non-Jews, the Gentiles are getting saved. We've, and then some letters are sent probably, and Jerusalem's like, uh, are they becoming Jewish? Are they get, becoming circumcised? Are they learning Moses' law? And they're like, no, they're not. They're staying Gentile, but they're believers. We need to have a meeting. So Acts 15, famous point in the church history, it's called the Jerusalem Council. Paul and Barnabas are the, are the two guys going to say, we don't know what's happening, but the Greeks and the, the Gentiles are becoming Christians. So that's Acts 15. Barnabas was the central guy in that, him and Paul. Um, Acts chapter 12, um, it reveals that, that um, Mark... Uh, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, was um, his uh, cousin. Also, in, later in Acts, I forget which chapter it is, we find out that Mark's mother um, was the one who was one of the main houses of the Jerusalem church. Some people say there's about three to four houses that could house a lot of the people of the Jerusalem church. Mark's mother, whatever she did, um, she had a huge house. And then later on, we know that what happened with Paul and Barnabas, they split ways. And what was it over? Paul said, I don't want Mark going with us anymore. Something happened between Paul and Mark. I don't want him going with us. And Barnabas says, me and Mark are going to keep going. And so we're going to go on this way, Paul, and they split ways. So beautiful thing. Um, so someone who has um, the um, godliness to maybe, we don't know, was someone wrong on that or were both of them right? No one was out of line, but, but what did God use that as? It multiplied. It multiplied two forces going forward. So what happened with him? Jesus had changed his heart. He was captivated and seeing Jesus gave all. So I'm willing to give all. I'm all in. My yes is on the table. Jesus had given them a love for other people, a love and appreciation and an understanding of Jesus' kingdom, and it naturally overflowed to others. So um, do you see the level of experiencing God that Barnabas had? Um, believers in America... I think that God has blessed us with so much. And after a while, um, we, we just get so used to it, uh, accumulating more and more. And then we run into this guy, and, and he's got a little bit more. And I'm like, well, I think I'd like that also. And we, we, we get into where we don't see people with needs right in front of us. It happens all over. Um, God goes, I'm going to bless you with so much, with abilities, with intellect, with, with um, all these things. And I want you to use it for the kingdom's sake. Could you use it for the kingdom? I've shown you this. And here's where we go. But in America, it's the American dream. It's my mini-series version of the American dream. And I think that's what happens. Um, we, we buy into this idea. of This is mine. This is mine. So thinking through that, um, that, that's what we're seeing with Barnabas there. And, and he does a really good job of laying that out. Now notice a couple of things here as we're about to move on to the next part of Ananias and Sapphira, just closing up in Barnabas. 
Um, and the reason I spent a little bit of time, you may go, man, you're camping out on this Barnabas guy a lot. So there's whole weekends. There's like Barnabas weekends. There's Barnabas trainings. There's Barnabas ministries and everything where they, they, they you can go in and study a lot of things and, and show how, uh, how powerfully God used him and like, hey, let's be a Barnabas type person. But notice two things here. His sacrificial giving did not secure comfort in the future. Difficult trials that he and Paul went through. All those shipwrecks and dangerous things they went through. Extremely difficult, life-altering trials. You, just, you, you believe that God's leading you to do something, and you say, yes, I'll do this, I'm going to be obedient. It doesn't mean that God has to make it safe and comfort and secure later on. So just remember that. That's one of the things. Um, it didn't, um, his sacrificial giving didn't secure comfort in the future. Secondly, his sacrificial giving didn't guarantee payback. Again, you just sowed into the kingdom of God. It may look like you're losing in the kingdom of this world. You just sowed into the kingdom of God. I, I didn't tell you that I have to pay you back times 10 or times 100 in the worldly possessions. Jesus tells you this is a matter of the heart. He's coaxing you to consider how much you actually love money or possessions or how you thought it was supposed to be. That's life, how you thought it was supposed to be. And he goes, I'm trying to rip your fingers loose of that, of what you thought that had to be. Um, so think through that. He's showing us what we actually love. And then in the last part there where he goes to Ananias and Sapphira, um, notice that he sold a piece of property. He saw what happened with Barnabas, and then he goes, hmm, it seems very clear. He and his wife get together and go, man, did you see what happened with Barnabas? It seems like a lot of people, there's a lot of writing on this, that, that maybe Barnabas would kind of, again, like he was kind of a back row guy and just did this thing, and, and but just you know, God used him. And then he was kind of moved forward in the church and become obviously very, very powerfully used by God, and, and people got jealous. People began to see, ooh, I want to be looked at as super spiritual. I want to be looked at as a spiritual leader. And so that happened. What, what does Satan do? He uses spiritual pride. He uses jealousy. He uses greed. He, he lets someone have some little bitty thing, and, and two other people get jealous of it, and they want that. Um, and so Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, there was no, they go and sell this land but here's the things that we that, that the story don't tell, that the story doesn't tell. Luke doesn't go into this. There's a much broader conversation that goes on. Seems very clear that Ananias, definitely, but maybe Sapphira also, had probably been big talking that. Oh, oh, Barnabas, you know, hashtag humble old me. You know, you know, we did the same thing that Barnabas did. did. Did you hear about the land we just sold? Yeah, took it all took all the proceeds and laid it before the apostles' feet, just like Barnabas. Remember that thing Barnabas happened? Yes, we love Barnabas, don't we? Well, I, I kind of did the same thing. Hashtag just blessed. Just they're, they're, you know, he, So there was some talk going on, and, and, and the story doesn't tell it, but it was very clear on two matters. Number one, that they had been um, talking and sharing about their giving is one thing. That was clear. It comes out in his uh, Peter's words to um, Ananias and Sapphira. But then the second thing, they quoted giving the full amount. So notice this. Here's how deceitful sin is. There had been no command that if you own land, you have to sell it. Not all. Keep your land, Ananias. Keep your land, Barnabas. 
no command at all that they had to sell it. There was also no command that if you do sell it, you have to give every cent to the church. Didn't do it. Remember I've talked about before, church cultures of conformity. We see 10 families and they do this one thing. So everyone has to come over and we we all have to do this one thing because this is godliness. No, enjoy your freaking land. Enjoy it, plant stuff on it, do whatever. But you better not sell it because really you're not concerned about the heart of Jesus. You're concerned about, I want to look like Barnabas. You see the difference there? I see needs here immediately. Or I see leadership. I see prestige. I see honor. Is that what Jesus was aiming at? No. He humbled himself. Philippians 2. Man, consider others more significant. So I'll go to this pit called earth where everyone's against me, and I'm going to live holy and righteously and cover their sins, even on the cross. Father, forgive them. These people that are gathering that gathered together to, to kill me. So no command to sell all you had or to sell your land. No command, no command that you had to, whatever you did sell, you had to um, give all of it to the church. Um, there was no command um, where you were required those things, and yet that's what they've been talking about, and it, made, and it made it very clear there's a certain amount. Hey, we sold it for this amount, and here's how much we gave the church. Because remember what he goes back to Sapphira and says, Sapphira, did you give this amount? Did y'all say it was this much, this amount? And she says, yes, it was this amount. That had, been, that had been the conversations that we don't have there that Luke provided. So all of those just to show um, just the danger of our hearts. So, so what's going on on a deeper level? I've got a slide here showing um, through that kind of crazy story um, where Ananias says this, and he, here's this amount, and he just drops dead right in front of Peter. Sapphira drops dead just a few minutes later. So crazy story there. So, so what is God showing us? Um, if this is going so well, why would this happen? A lot of questions about God's sovereignty, a lot of questions about God's goodness. So the first thing is, what do we kind of take away on a deeper level? There's loving unity and sacrificial care for one another. So what's at stake? That loving unity and sacrificial care for one another. God's going, that, that, that's what I wanted. Um, the shocking divine judgment was God's way of protecting purity and unity and loving generosity. Um, that had been created through the Spirit for the foundation of his church. This wasn't the 10,000th church. This wasn't church number 1,000. This is the first one. And God was going, man, you, you took what was supposed to be of Christ, characteristics, attributes, care, compassion of Christ. You didn't give a rip about those. You deceitfully cared about you looking Christ-like while living in deceit. You cared so much about impressing people looking spiritual, though you were living disobediently and living for evil. Um, so the spiritual hypocrisy is the second thing there. Um, again, it doesn't go into detail, but Peter had obvious knowledge of them. So um, not only had he heard from people because he brings it out to Sapphira, but um, the text gives the impression that Jesus, or that um, Peter had revelation from God, that I know this is what's going on. Now, it doesn't say that he knew that they were going to drop dead, um, so I don't know what their course of uh, church discipline would have been. I think the church would be a little bit more pure if that was a step three of church discipline. Like, remember two weeks ago, Sally and Jim came up and they dropped dead. 
Let's do the communion. Let's do the Lord's Supper again. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, Lord, please forgive me for anything I'm not seeing. And so it would be a very pure church, right? And so um, at the very core, again, they're, they're wanting to look like Jesus, to, to appear godly, and, and they're, they're doing the very thing that was ungodly and, and letting Satan control them. Um, so why would God do this? Um, what is the concern from God's perspective? Um, notice we immediately feel like, man, this seems kind of overreactive. God's a little you know, touchy here. This is very overreactive. Why is it always that when we see a human being, when they're in God's presence or something happens, that our mind always goes to protect and kind of prop up mankind and protect mankind? Who's the one screaming for God's holiness? Who's the one protecting God's fame name and God's holy perspective? As humans, in our fallenness, even though if we love God, we're like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, they're probably just really bad. Um, who has a jealous concern for God's fame? in God's reputation. Um, and if we're not careful, we look over the millions of tiny rebellions each person commits that God is patient and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love towards us. We forget, we look all over that, and we quickly, our mind puts God on trial like, this doesn't seem fitting. This is wrong. I thought you were a loving God. I thought you were a good God, and yet you kill people? Um, why, God? Would you allow this to happen? Why did you make this? This seems so unfair. That's what people's minds will go to when they read that. Instead of, why, God, is Peter and John still standing? Why? To me, if you go to this lie about this money situation, I mean, just on my perspective, and I have a wrong perspective, Peter denying Jesus the night of the cross, like I think like, man, if I'm smushing heads there, it's Peter, like first in line, you know, uh, big deal. Like I told you they were going to do this. Someone grab him as they're dragging me off with the cross. I'm like, Somebody grab Peter, take him out. And, and that would be me. And instead, Peter's the one going like, oh my gosh, he probably's going, I guess maybe they don't remember that night that I betrayed him those three times. And so again, man, talk about bring some revival and, and repentance. This would do it. Um, so who's protecting God's fame name? Um, at the end, Luke provides his estimation with a couple of summary statements there, both with Ananias and Sapphira. In 5.5, 5, he says, great fear came upon all who heard of it. In 5.11, great, 5, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So maybe instead of placing God on trial quickly, we could ask, thinking through the context of real-life situation, why would this be significant and important at this stage of, the, of Christ's church? Why would this be significant for the church? First of all, to show God's jealous protection of his reputation and glory. That's what the church was supposed to be about. He's going, I'm not going to allow my name and my glory to be just brought down into the mud. So a high view of God. And to purge the church, secondly, to purge the church of arrogant, unyielding, unrepentant sin, and to press the seriousness of sin. And then third, to restore a high, exalted uh, view of God and his holiness to the church. And as the church, as the people who are supposed to be representing Jesus to the world. And if you're living like this and people know and see this, so if there's co-workers and they're like, oh, I know Ananias. He said he took all that to the church, but we saw him go buy a few more oxen, redid some things in their, they did a you know, makeover of their kitchen. They did some other things. Ananias is getting all the glory in the church, but we know him. We saw what went on. So you see it brings down even the church supposed to be a representation of Christ to the world. And then also to restore people's hearts toward caring 
and sacrificing for others. It brings up this idea of what is love? What is actual sacrifice? So look at James 2, 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And man, let me tell you, I maybe this has been the one thing that God, maybe God is in the future is going to allow us to be a, a fountain where stuff flows out, but he's allowed me to experience and see and taste. I have had people where I can show them extreme, extreme, extreme needs. And I know they have plenty of supply. And hey, Sinky, man, we'll pray about that. We'll pray about that. And you're just going, man, you, you don't get, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm terrified in this culture for people who sometimes I don't know that they're believers. Sometimes it could be ministries or churches. It could be different places where I'm going, man, you have plenty. You have all this. And we're asking for, you know, you know, 0.00001%. You would never even miss on Monday morning. And the answer is, be blessed. Be blessed in your work. We're not going to help you at all. It's crazy. And uh, so I don't know if God's allowing that just for me to, to see and to feel what that's like for the people that may be in the future that we'll be able to help. First um, John 3, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So um, some big things to think through. Here are the, the, the last four things as we consider just prayer going forward. Um, these walkaways. Number one, um, we need to be more aware of spiritual warfare in our own hearts, which destroys the unity and love and service of the church. So are you even aware of spiritual warfare? Could be, like I said, small group and someone says something and now you're offended. Could be something that goes on now you're being offended instead of convicted. You're not letting go of things, forgiving easily. We need to be aware of spiritual warfare. Secondly, we need to be more aware of the Spirit's power to help us and to enable us, to transform us, and seek more of God's obedience and seek more of the Spirit. But then also, is there anything that you're holding back from God? So even a small group this, this small or someone that's listening online, if God's been bringing you to an area that, that, uh, of obedience and laying something on your heart, and you may have been praying about it, and, and, and you are saying no to that, I would warn you. And I'm not warning that you're, you're necessarily going to drop dead like Ananias and Sapphira. It could be an issues of obedience of you. Just stop doing the sins that you're doing. Or it could be something that he's tried to open you up to. And you're, maybe it's fear. Maybe it's, uh, what would our life look like though? What would this be? Seems like it wouldn't be so secure. Um, are the things God's tried to grow you in, but now there's some callousness, some hardness, because you've said no a few times. And then fourth, we need to consider our level of generosity in our, in our giving of not only money, but time, relationships, and service as we see different needs around us, just to see those needs and to act on them. And then the last one is we need to heed the warning and seriousness of sin in our own lives. So I'm going to pray. You can kind of respond and read those if you want to and see as Brad comes up. I'm going to pray as we go to the uh, time of just response and just to think through those things. Are those any of those four and we can put those up on the uh, website also, or up on Slack, um, for you to consider this week. And I'm going to pray. Father, we do um, just see um, not only the beauty of your care and compassion and love and the beauty of the gospel and the kingdom moving forward, but we also see Satan's attack. 
We see his strategic attack on things that are moving towards godliness. We see the attack on these young churches. Um, We see um, the things that are happening in these believers' lives at the very foundational level of the church that he wants to come in and destroy. And so, Father, we pray our own lives. We want to learn from this. We want to see it, but we want to learn, but we need your help. It's not just a willpower thing. We need more of the Spirit. We need to be aware of the spiritual warfare that can come in little conversations, that can come in little jealousies and greedy um, greedy for gain wants and desires. It can come in desiring to be spiritual, desiring to have a position, desiring to be respected. Um, all those things, Father. Would you guide us and guard us in those spiritual warfare areas? Would you allow there to be this beautiful unity and oneness that we see here that's going on in Acts 2 and 3 and 4? Father, we thank you for the warning, um, that this, this shocking, um, surprising thing. And, and most people would say that Ananias and Sapphira were possibly believers. Like, how does that work? Would you allow us, Father, to have a great heed and a great pause if we've got sin going on in our lives like that? Would you help us to um, repent from that, confess those sins, and turn to you and experience renewal? And God, would you allow us to be a place that, that truly experiences what's described here at the end of chapter 4. We pray that you would allow us um, those great resources, not just of finances, Father. We need those, but, but Father, uh, of love for one another, of uh, graciousness and gratitude and sharing our lives with one another, Just not, not just the physical needs, but truly sharing um, our lives. That's where the spiritual um, transformation happens. We thank you that you can provide this for us, and we pray that you'd use your word to change us through the Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.